Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, uh, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And the confusion stops here. Got a lot to talk about, as always, and today we're going to talk about how the Holy mis- uh, Mysteries of the Rosary, the Mysteries of the Most Holy Rosary, how they relate to the Eucharist. And we're going to do that by looking uh, at Father Lassance's, right, Father F.X. Lassance, famous uh, uh, compiler of prayer books and whatnot back from the early part of the 20th century. He uh, published a Eucharistic Rosary. And so we're going to look at uh, some of those prayers. Uh, I won't be reciting the prayers, but but what they represent in regard to how the Eucharist uh, and the mysteries of the Rosary relate to each other. Also, we're going to have another no-nonsense look at the new Mass segment. We uh, started that a couple of weeks ago. It struck me that uh, um, a goodly portion of our listeners, uh, although I am uh, a Catholic that typically assists at the extraordinary form of the Mass, most of our listeners, the vast majority of Catholics all over the country, of course, uh, attend the Novus Ordo. And so I wanted to to take a sober look at that. And we're going to do that a little uh, later on, looking at some uh, uh, things that uh, pertain to the priesthood. And also we're going to discover five infallible reasons why the Church has never and will never ordain women to the priesthood. But uh, first we're going to do our, uh, continue with our series on the Lenten Gospels of the Extraordinary Form with the Sunday Gospel for this third week of Lent, which was taken from Matthew 11, verses 14 through 28. So let's jump right in. At that time, Jesus was casting out a devil, and the same was dumb. And when he had cast out the devil, the dumb spoke, and the multitudes were in admiration of it. But some of them said, He casteth out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And others, tempting, asked of him a sign from heaven. But he, seeing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself shall be brought to desolation, and house upon house shall fall. And if Satan be also divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say that through Beelzebub I cast out devils. Now if I cast out devils by Beelzebub, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore therefore they shall be your judges. But if by the finger of God I cast out devils, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his court, those things are in peace which he possesseth. But if a stronger than he come upon him and overcome him, he will take away all his armor wherein he trusted, and will distribute his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through places without water seeking rest, and not finding, he saith, I will return into my house whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it swept and garnished, Then he goeth and taketh with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and entering in they dwell there. And the last state of that man becometh worse than the first. And it came to pass, as he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd, lifting up her voice, said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore thee, and the paps that gave thee suck. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they who hear the word of God, and keep it. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, there is so much here, I, I can't possibly do justice to it in, in a single segment here. You know, So I either um, do the whole show just on this Gospel, or I confine myself to focusing on, on one or another aspect of it, which is uh, how we're going to proceed. See, our Lord makes it clear in this Gospel that you must either choose to follow Him, 
or reject him, and that there is no middle ground. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters. And when he tells about the unclean spirit that uh, is cast out, returning with seven more spirits, more wicked uh, than itself, we can understand this, especially in Lent, in terms of the sacrament of penance, of confession. Because although we've had our sins forgiven in baptism, uh, we still suffer the effects of original sin, we're still inclined to sin. So our Lord instituted the sacrament of penance to forgive sins that are committed after baptism. But to, uh, to sweep our house clean, so to speak, in confession is not enough. Because once we've returned to the state of grace, we need to preserve the presence of God uh, within us by persevering in prayer and in good works, right? both the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, in order to be empowered to, to overcome uh, the, the temptation to fall back into that sin. <clears throat> because unless we remain filled with the presence of God in our soul, we will fall, and perhaps not only fall back into that serious sin that uh, had once been forgiven, but all the other deadly sins besides, which is what our Lord is talking about when he what he means by seven spirits more wicked than itself. And so our last state will be worse than the first. And that's one reason uh, that the church gives us an entire season of penance and encourages us to to, uh, uh, all the, the three traditional practices of Lent, which are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, because it's precisely by regularly communicating with God and by mortifying our senses and by performing good works, that we remain filled with the indwelling um, presence of the Holy Trinity and remain secure in the state of grace. That, by the way, is a big part of the message of Our Lady of America, is that indwelling of the indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity, uh, the state of grace. Now, <clears throat> the other thing I wanted to touch on is the final two verses of this gospel, because I think they've uh, been the cause of a great deal of mischief. And it came to pass, as he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd, lifting up her voice, said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore thee, and the paps that gave thee suck. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, you know, this is one of those verses where people will get derailed by a single word. You know, that and the fact that they're reading the Bible out of context. And, and when I refer to, to context, I don't just mean, you know, the whole of Scripture, even, but primarily the sacred tradition of the Church, because, you know, it, it is that tradition of which Scripture is the product, right? You can't separate Scripture and tradition. And, and I recall this scene depicted in one of those modern um, Jesus movies, right, uh, where the woman says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you, and Mary's looking all proud of herself, right, hearing the, this compliment, and then Jesus rebukes the woman and mary looks ashamed and i thought what a what a blasphemy you know I mean, it's one of those times when i actually talk back to the tv screen you know i was, I was deeply offended um, so the first thing is that this incident is absolutely not a rebuke of the blessed virgin mary quite the opposite in fact uh, bishop next commentary on holy scripture um in, in that very classic work, this episode is actually entitled, Jesus Declares His Mother Blessed, All right, which is the opposite of a rebuke. So, so what's the source of the confusion? Because that's what we're here for. Well, it comes down really to a single word in English, and that word is rather. 
because, like so many English words, rather has more than one meaning. It can mean on the contrary, as in I would, you know, rather have this than that, you know, which is how our separated brethren often choose to uh, understand it in this verse. But it can also mean uh, very or indeed, right? It's a rather hot day. Yes, indeed. That's how our Lord is using it. You know, and the way some of our fundamentalist friends see it, that woman calls Mary blessed and Jesus replies rather, meaning on the contrary, only those are blessed who hear the word of God and keep it. You know, as, as though that didn't pertain to his holy mother. And, but, you know, when you look at the Dewey translation, uh, there's another word there that helps us understand, and that word is yea, right? Yea means yes, right? Uh, um, the woman says, blessed is the womb that bore thee and the paps that gave thee suck. And Jesus says, yea, rather, comma, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. So his first word in reply to the woman is yes. Yea, rather, yes, indeed, comma, blessed are they, you know, etc. Now, the word yea is not there. I always go to the Latin Vulgate, and the word yea is not there, but it is implied. But because it's not, you know, there, most of these modern uh, translations render it, but he said, rather, comma, blessed is the one who hears the one, you know, which implies on the contrary. But in the Latin, it says, at iridixit, but he said, quinimo beati, comma, qui audiunt verbum dei et custodiant illud, rather blessed, comma, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Rather blessed, very blessed, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, one modern translation, the contemporary English version, which is an ecumenical translation done by the American Bible Society and you know, in modern English, they actually kind of get it better than most of the modern translations. It says, while Jesus was still talking, a woman in the crowd spoke up. The woman who gave birth to you and nursed you is blessed. Jesus replied, that's true. But the people who are really blessed are the ones who hear and obey God's message. Now, see, this at least recognizes that Jesus is agreeing with the woman. Although in the footnotes for Luke 1, verse 28, it says, that's true, but the people who are really blessed are the ones, etc. Or, that's not true. <laughs> the people who are really blessed are the ones, etc. So they hedge their bets, you know, by providing both meanings of the word rather. So it brings us to the, to the question, which interpretation is the correct one? Well, in the context of Luke's gospel, right, context is the important thing. Ten chapters earlier, we read that Elizabeth, and the scripture says she's inspired by the Holy Spirit, says to Mary, Blessed art thou that hast believed, because those things shall be accomplished that were spoken to thee by the Lord. And Mary replies, My soul doth magnify the Lord, etc. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me, what? Blessed. So St. Luke presents Mary to us as the one that God the Holy Spirit declares blessed. And Mary, also by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesies that all generations will call her blessed. And then that woman calls her blessed, and the Son of God fulfills the prophecy by declaring her blessed, because she is the perfect example of the one who hears the word of God and keeps it, who said, Be it done to me according to thy word, and who kept all these words and pondered them in her heart. And that's no nonsense. And we'll be right back with lots more when we return No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful. Wow. 
right, welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We started a new segment a couple of weeks ago that uh, I like to call a no-nonsense look at the new order of the Mass. And I wanted to look at this week um, uh, at a couple of parts of the Mass that illustrate some important points regarding the nature of the priesthood. And the first is the greeting and response that we repeat all throughout the Holy Mass. The priest says, the Lord be with you, and the people reply, and with your spirit. Now, prior to 2010, this uh, oft-repeated exchange of priests and people was deliberately mistranslated into English as, the Lord be with you, and also with you. And I say deliberately because, number one, it's not mistranslated in, you know, Spanish and Italian and, and many of the other languages, and because any first-year Latin student can tell you that et cum spiritu tuo means and with your spirit, uh, and not something else. Now, of course, this, the English translation has been corrected, thanks be to God, but there's something else to be noted here. You see, the Latin of the New Mass, which is the normative version, right? That's the official um, version of the New Mass is the Latin. And the traditional Latin Mass, the, these prayers are identical. The priest says, Dominus Fobiscum, the Lord be with you, plural, as in all of you. And the response is, et cum spiritu tuo, which means, and with your spirit, your singular. So, uh, hence the traditional translation that you'll find in Extraordinary Form Missals, and with thy spirit. You know, and I think that you, yours, versus thee, thine distinction is still valuable. That's, a, that's another topic for another time. The point is, both of these greetings come from the epistles of uh, St. Paul. That plural greeting, the Lord be with you, is used when he's writing to a community. Whereas, the Lord be with your spirit, he only addresses to an individual. For example, um, St. Timothy, who was a young bishop. And that expression, and with your spirit, refers to the grace of ordination. Right? And even the United States Bishop's website um, uh, explains that the words, and with your spirit, may only be addressed to the ordained. And that's the point. The words, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, demonstrate the distinction between the ministerial priesthood, uh, the priesthood of the ordained, and the common priesthood of all the baptized. And that distinction was blurred, and perhaps on purpose, by the mistranslation and also with you, because it removed the reference to the unique grace of ordination. You know, and now there was another... Uh, a similar mistranslation um, of the prayer Orate Fratres. Orate Fratres uh, is Latin for pray, brethren. The prayer is pray, brethren, or optionally brothers and sisters, and not sisters and brothers or folks or, you know, any other thing else. It's brethren or brothers and sisters. Uh, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice, which is also yours, may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father, and we you know, respond, may the Lord accept this sacrifice at your hands, etc. Now, prior to 2010, that was mistranslated as, pray, my brothers and sisters, that our sacrifice may be, etc., etc. Now, again, this is a deliberate mistranslation, and, and arguably proceeds from that same desire to blur the distinction between the ordained priesthood and the common priesthood of the laity. See, not my sacrifice that's also yours, but simply our sacrifices, that we're, that we're all offering um, the sacrifice, right? See, the sacrifice of the Mass 
uh, is identical to the sacrifice of the cross. Just as Christ offered his uh, bloody sacrifice on the cross, the priest uh, in the person of Christ offers that same once-for-all sacrifice at the altar, but in an unbloody manner. This is, you know, that's the Baltimore Catechism. This is Catholicism 101. So why the mistranslation? Well, why the blurring of the distinction? And I suspect that for some of the, uh, the liturgical revolutionaries, it represented what they hoped would be the first step towards, bum, 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 women's ordination. And so that is, you know, that's where my mind went as I was looking at these prayers. <coughs> and there's a lot more to say about them, but uh, I, I want to focus on this today. The question before us, can women be ordained to the Catholic priesthood? I mean, is it, is it a matter of doctrine or is it disciplinary? Uh, is the fact that we have an all-male priesthood, in other words, something that the church can change? And, and it's a question that keeps coming up, and so it, it deserves our attention. And first, a little background. Um, the sacrament of holy orders, only a baptized man may be ordained to the sacrament of holy orders. And why is that? Well, Jesus only chose men to be apostles. Now, and we should point out that our Lord wasn't uh, bound by any mere custom or convention. You know, all throughout his earthly ministry, he didn't uh, hesitate to break with convention. Uh, and one great example is how scandalized the uh, apostles were when he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. For a rabbi to speak to a Gentile woman, you know, is, is verboten. That, but, but he broke with the custom. And when Jesus rose from the dead, all the way at the other end of his ministry, um, he first appears to Mary Magdalene, right? The scriptural appearances. Uh, and, and this is at a time when in Jewish culture, a woman could not give legal testimony. And yet, our Lord appeared to her and called her to be the first witness to the resurrection, even to be the one who would bring the good news to the apostles. Right? So it's not that he's bound by, uh, you know, attitudes towards women from the first century. Also, you know, we, after his ascension, we see that the, you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary, of course, occupied a very privileged place in the early church. She was amongst those waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend, uh, you know, in the upper room at Pentecost. But when it came time to replace Judas, right, uh, Mary Magdalene was not called to the College of Apostles. Not even the Blessed Virgin Mary was called to enter the college. The Twelve chose Matthias because they continued Christ's practice of only choosing men, and then so did all of their successors down through the centuries. Sacraments, in order to be valid, must have proper matter and form, and the matter of holy orders is a baptized man. Uh, the teaching that priestly ordination is reserved to men alone is part of the deposit of faith. It is the constant tradition of the church. And this is a fact that was reiterated by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith under Cardinal Ratzinger. Uh, the church can no more change th this fact than she can you know, change any of the other sacraments. You know, the church has the authority to change the way in which we celebrate the sacraments, hence you know, the new Mass. But she cannot change the essential elements that were established by Christ. Because the sacraments were established by Christ, instituted by Christ to give grace. So <coughs> the priest is a sign of the priesthood. And sacramental signs um, represent what they signify by a natural resemblance. Because of what he represents, 
The priest must be a sign that is recognizable, that the faithful can see and easily understand. When the priest uh, acts in persona Christi, he takes on the role of Christ to the point of being his representative. And the priest, you know, the priest is an icon of Christ. You know, think of baptism. Baptism um, washes away our sins, original sin and, and personal sin. And so the sign of baptism is, is water, because that's the, the natural way of, of washing, right? Same thing with, with the priest as an icon of Christ. And so it's natural that he would be a man. He also reflects our, our Lord's role as the bridegroom of the church. And that image can only be reflected by a man, gender theory notwithstanding. You know, my wife actually explained it in those terms to our kids. She said, you know, can a woman be a father? And the kids are like, well, no, right? Because, and she says, just as it's physically impossible for a woman to be a father, it is theologically impossible for a woman to be a priest. You know, when I worked at uh, St. Joseph Communications, I produced a series by Tim Staples on women's ordination on this very topic. And <clears throat> it was my wife, Betty, who came up with the title, Call No Woman Father. Anyway, uh, Pope John Paul II definitively answered the question of women's ordination uh, in a document addressed to all the bishops of the world that was called Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, on reserving the priesthood to men alone. And this is what he wrote, and I quote, Although the teaching that priestly ordination is to be reserved to men alone has been preserved by the constant and universal tradition of the Church and firmly taught by the magisterium in its more recent documents, at the present time, in some places, it is nonetheless considered still open to the bait. Or the Church's judgment that women are not to be admitted to ordination is considered to have a merely disciplinary force. Wherefore, in order that all doubt may be removed regarding a matter of great importance, a matter which pertains to the Church's divine constitution itself, in virtue of my ministry of confirming the brethren, I declare that the Church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women and that this judgment is to be definitively held by all the Church's faithful. Amen. That, my friends, is an ex cathedra papal teaching that is binding upon all the faithful. In other words, it has all of the qualities of an infallible decree, an infallible statement. And if it ain't an infallible statement, it'll do until one comes along, because he's very, very clear that he's, uh, that he's invoking his authority as pope, that it's a, a, a matter of faith and morals, and that it is to be definitively held by all the faithful. So, so there it is. Now, finally, I, I'll, I'll bring up the question that I ask all my RCIA classes. I ask the question, who has the right to be a priest? And the answer is simple. Nobody. No one has a right to be a priest. The priesthood is a gift. It's a gift from God. God calls men. God chooses men and calls them to the priesthood. And when a man feels that he's being called, it is the church that helps him to discern if he really has such a calling or not. Women are not called to the priesthood because it is a physical and theological impossibility. 
and God does not implant the hu- in, in the human heart a desire that cannot be fulfilled. He does not ask of us the impossible. It's, it would be absurd. It's a nonsense for, for God to, to ask you to do something that's impossible to achieve. Now, many of us have unfulfillable desires, no doubt. Sure, there's women that want to be priests, uh, and you know, there's men that want to be women and, and all the rest. But don't blame God for implanting those desires. So let's recap. A baptized man is the necessary matter for the sacrament of holy orders. The Church does not have the authority to change the essential aspects of the sacraments that were instituted by our Lord and which belong to the deposit of faith. It's physically and theologically impossible for a woman to be a Catholic priest. No one has the right to be a priest, and God does not call women to the priesthood. And then finally, Roma locuta est, causa finita est. Rome has spoken. The matter is settled. And there you have it, five infallible reasons why the Church does not and will never ordain women to the priesthood, and that's no nonsense. Back with uh, the Eucharistic Rosary and more when uh, No Nonsense Catholic returns right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, the confusion stops here. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. And when we were, or when I was, I should say, um, thinking about these uh, prayers and the kind of the differences between the ordinary and extraordinary form, uh, something got me thinking about the way we participate at Holy Mass. Because you know, like in the olden days, it was uh, very common for devout Catholics to assist at Mass in other ways than simply you know, joining in the responses of the altar boys or, or, or even following along with the prayers in a hand missile. Uh, in fact, that was, you know, practically impossible for the average Catholic for, for the centuries and centuries before the invention of the printing press. And, you know, even regarding the imposition of the, of the new order of the Mass, Pope Paul VI said, we shall notice that pious persons will be disturbed the most because they have their own respectable way of hearing Mass. And, and what is that? Well, some Catholics followed Mass in their hand missile, Some followed various methods of assisting at Holy Mass that you would find in Catholic prayer books, like uh, I've got my my prayer book by Father Lassange here. Um, And and I, um, you know, maybe some people pray the rosary or or some other private devotion, some combination of thereof. And I I admit that typically um, when I attend the extraordinary form on Sundays and Holy Days, I I read the proper prayers and the, the scripture readings, but I don't always follow the prayers of the ordinary in the Missal. But that doesn't mean that I'm not actively participating in the Mass. You know, um, for one thing, in the extraordinary form of the Mass, the, the periods of profound silence give me an opportunity to make heartfelt prayers and, and to commune with God in a way that's frankly not even possible at the ordinary form. And, you know, for anybody who might be scandalized by the idea of my, you know, praying the Rosary or, or some other private devotion during Mass... I would point out that um, this practice, this way of assisting at Mass, has a much longer pedigree in the Church, centuries and centuries longer than any of the novel prayers or practices of the new Mass. And it was uh, very much this personal way of assisting at Mass that gave us the majority of the great saints, you know, uh, virtually all the great saints prior to the second half of the 20th century. And that's no nonsense. 
So we're going to talk today about one of those methods, um, which is actually suitable. Now, you know, you wouldn't want to do that necessarily at the Novus Ordo because you're uh, in the midst of all the, you know, standing and sitting and, and, and responding and whatnot. Um, but it is also, uh, Eucharistic Rosary is in my prayer book by Father Lassance, and uh, he writes, The Holy Rosary, on account of the meditations on the mysteries in the life of our Lord and the Blessed Virgin, which we make while reciting it, uh, is one of the most useful devotions while assisting at Mass or in connection with our visits to the Blessed Sacrament and the Hour of Adoration. So that Eucharistic Rosary is really perfect for, for Eucharistic adoration. And he says that, that uh, if you persevere in this pious practice, you will increase daily in love of Jesus Christ in an imitation of the virtues of the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And once again, that is one of the things that was emphasized in the messages of Our Lady of America that just last year were approved for private devotion by Catholics, that we imitate the virtues of the Holy Family. And that's also uh, just another thing. It's when, when Mary comes and, and speaks to someone, you know, uh, that those messages are never any new teaching. It's never anything revolutionary. It's always restoration. It's a restoration of some old uh, truth that maybe we've lost sight of. And so I want to take a look at this. I'm not going to read you the prayers, but but what they represent in regard to how the mysteries of the rosary relate to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. So we'll start with the first uh, uh, of the joyful mysteries, which is the Annunciation. You know, God, uh, the Son, was born of the Father from all eternity. And filled with this incomprehensible love for us, he became man in the womb womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, through the power of the Holy Ghost, humbling himself to the degree of of taking the form of a saint. You know, Scripture says, being in the form of God, he, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man and in habit found as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Now, that same love inspired him to perpetuate in the Eucharist this mystery of love, even even to expand on it by becoming food for our souls. And that's that's a matter. It's going to take you a a good ten Hail Marys to, to contemplate that. And as you do, you know, as we consider that mystery, as we contemplate, we beg of Christ through the intercession of his Holy Mother a deep and heartfelt humility. Right? Because certainly humility is a quality not only that our Lord had on earth, but that he still exercises present in the Blessed Sacrament. Now the second joyful mystery is the visitation. And in this mystery we contemplate how um, our divine Savior, still in the womb of Mary, breathes forth sanctity into John the Baptist and, and uh, on the whole household of Elizabeth. You know, we, It's in Luke one forty one where it says, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the infant leaped in her womb, and she was filled with the Holy Ghost. And in a similar way, from the tabernacle, you know, wherein his presence dwells, Jesus spreads throughout the the church over the whole world the influence of his grace and love. So in the Eucharist, we, uh, we adore Christ, full of love and kindness, and we beg of him through the intercession of his Holy Mother, perfect charity towards our neighbors. So you notice the way Father Lassance arranges this, not only do you see the relationship between the mystery and uh, our Lord and the Holy Eucharist, but also the virtue 
that the uh, that the mystery is you know, prayed in in hopes of, of of attaining. We try to we're trying to grow in holiness and to attain these specific virtues that are attached here, and it all ties together. Pardon me. The third joyful mystery is the nativity of our Lord, the birth of Jesus. Jesus, of course, was born King of Kings. I mean, he's God from all eternity. He became man as uh, son of David and, and, you know, the Messiah. And yet he was born in the most humble uh, of circumstances. He was, as, as Father Lassant says, he was poor indeed, yet most lovely in the manger at Bethlehem. And so he called the simple and the poor to be the first to come and worship him. You know, we all know the story of the angels who uh, appeared to the shepherds and brought them the tidings of great joy and how they said, let us, you know, go in haste to, to see this wonder and how they visited the manger. And, you know, in the Eucharist, in the Blessed Sacrament, present under the appearance of bread in the host, our Lord appears even poorer still, but no less beautiful to the eyes of faith. And he is still delighted to see the humble and the poor kneeling around him. And so in, in this mystery, the nativity, we contemplate our Lord in his poverty, knowing that to him belong all the treasures of divinity, and we beg of him through the intercession of his blessed mother for the virtue of detachment from the goods of this world, which makes this you know, particularly applicable to Lent. The fourth of the joyful mysteries is the presentation of our Lord in the temple. Now, this is um, especially um, significant to me because of my devotion to Our Lady of Good Success, and her official title is uh, La Nuestra Señora de la Buen Suceso de la Purificación. It's Our Lady of, of Good Success of the Purification, right? The, the presentation of Jesus in the temple, where she presents our Lord. You know, it's the greatest sacrifice to ever take place in the temple. Jesus is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, the Scripture says. And with Mary, he offers himself in the temple at Jerusalem with perfect obedience and love, offers himself to the Father through the hands of, of the priest, of uh, Holy Simeon. And as he offers himself as the victim who will be immolated on the cross, and Simeon understands, he's a prophet, and he says, you know, Lord, you, you let your servant go in peace because I, my eyes have beheld uh, the, the Savior. And in the Holy Eucharist, our eyes behold the Savior. Jesus still offers himself every day on the altar by the hands of his priests with the same obedient and love, offers himself uh, to the Father as our victim, always sacrificed and always living. As the song goes, sweet sacrament, we thee adore. And we beg of this sweet victim through the intercession of his blessed mother, the spirit of obedience and sacrifice. And then finally, we have the fifth joyful mystery, which is the finding of our Lord in the temple. Uh, and we again, we know the story very well. Jesus withdrew uh, from Mary and Joseph. He left them in tears to do the work of his father. But he filled them with joy when they found him in the temple amongst the doctors, who themselves were amazed at his knowledge and his wisdom. And similarly, we see that you know our Lord veiled um, under the Eucharistic species. He continues to impart divine teachings, and he continues to fill with joy those who seek him with their whole heart. You know, uh, you read in the book of Isaiah, for he will instruct him in judgment. Uh, his God will teach him. Uh, Thomas Akempis, also in, in the Imitation of Christ, blessed is he 
uh, who is taught by the truth, and who is our Lord Jesus. And so in this mystery, we beg of him through the intercession of, of Mary, the grace of seeking him with a lively and persevering faith in the sacrament, in the real presence of Jesus in the sacrament of his love. So there you have the, the, just the, the first five mysteries, and you know it is so much there and so profound, and you can see what, uh, how valuable this can be. And if you're in front of the Blessed Sacrament in the Hour of Adoration, uh, you'll be lucky to get through all the mysteries of the Rosary in an hour, because if you stop and really contemplate these things, um, it, you know, it uh, is very powerful. All right, so moving on then to the Sorrowful Mysteries. And of course, we pray the Sorrowful Mysteries. I don't know if everybody follows this uh, tradition, but we pray the Sorrowful Mysteries all through Lent. And uh, the first of them, of course, is the agony in the garden. And so here's our blessed Lord, burdened with uh, the weight of sorrow and sadness that's caused by our sins, yours and mine. And he falls bathed in a sweat of his own blood, and he endures this mortal agony. And in the Blessed Sacrament, you know, really he's even still more humbled. And again, on account of our sins. And so as we contemplate this mystery, we can compassionate uh, his, his agony or, or suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, as well as his humiliation in the Eucharist, and beg of him through the intercession of Mary a heartfelt sorrow for our sins. Okay, coming back with more on the Eucharistic Rosary when we return with lots more here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you along. Please stay with us, and we will be right back after these messages. Okay, we're going to see how much of the uh, Eucharistic Rosary that we can get through before the end of the program, picking up with the second sorrowful mystery, which is the scourging at the pillar. Um, Our good Jesus was scourged He's covered with wounds. You know, um, Bishop Sheen described it uh, as uh, his flesh hanging about his, his body like purple rags. You know, if you, of course, if you've seen the, the Passion of the Christ, you have some idea of, of how brutal the scourging was. And why, why endure this torture uh, you know, of his completely innocent flesh? And it's because of, you know, tradition tells us it's because of these sins committed by men against the virtue of purity, specifically. And in the Blessed Sacrament, impure hearts continue to insult him by sacrilegious communion. You know, and sadly, it may be the case that that many Catholics have never even heard the words of St. Paul from 1 Corinthians 11 because it was, uh, you know, deleted from the Novus Ordo cycle of readings. But in 1 Corinthians 11, 26 through 29, St. Paul says, For as often as you shall eat this bread and drink the chalice, you shall show the death of the Lord until he come. Therefore, whosoever shall eat this bread or drink the chalice of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of the chalice. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. Like I say, these words were deliberately deleted from the post-Vatican II cycle of readings, and so 
you know, this meditation on sacrilegious communion might seem, you know, offensive to, to some Catholics. But, but if that's the case, then it's all the more reason to contemplate how the bloody victim who is scourged at the pillar is the patient victim who is abused in the sacrament. And we beg of him through the intercession of Mary, the grace of mortifying our senses. Right, again, uh, an important thing for Lent. The third sorrowful mystery is the crowning with thorns. And here we contemplate the, the king of glory, crowned with thorns and proclaimed in derision king of the Jews by, by the brutal soldiers who, you know, savagely, they, they struck him and they spat on his holy face. And he falls victim to our sins of pride. And in the blessed sacrament, he continues to bear a crown of shame made up the acts of irreverence and contempt and hypocrisy and vanity uh, committed by Catholics in the very sanctuary. And so we beg of him, who is our loving king, overwhelmed with insults both in his passion and in the sacred host, through the intercession of his holy mother, we ask the grace of mortifying our self-love. Somebody once said that the one sin is selfishness and the one virtue is love, and there you have the foundation of all the philosophy and theology of the ages. And there's some truth in that. Uh, The fourth sorrowful mystery is the carrying of the cross. Nothing could alter the meekness and the patience with which Jesus carried the cross. Not curses, not uh, blasphemies, outrages, ill treatment, not anguish of heart over his, his unimaginable sufferings. And in the Blessed Sacrament, with a similar sweetness and patience, he has borne over the long course of centuries, centuries, and continues to bear doubts and, and lack of faith in the real present and murmurs and insults on the part of Catholics, on the part of those who through baptism are his brothers and sisters. And so in this mystery, we contemplate Jesus carrying the cross, carrying the cross with love, carrying the cross prepared for him by the Father to make up for our sins and beg of him through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin, patience in the trials of our life. And then the fifth sorrowful mystery is the crucifixion. It's the death of our Lord. It's been said that it was our Lord's love more than the, nine, uh, the, the iron nails that kept him riveted to the cross, whereon he atoned for our sins in the midst of all of these unspeakable torments. And today we find him riveted by the same love in the sacrament of the altar, continuing his sacrifice to the end of the world in order to apply the fruits of that suffering to us. He has been rightly called. I mean, it was, you look at these older books of piety and you'll often see Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament referred to as the prisoner of the tabernacle because his, his present remains there waiting for you and for me. So in this mystery, we contemplate the, the Lamb of God perpetually immolated for us, right? Always being sacrificed all around the world, uh, all around the clock and beg of him through the intercession of Mary that he would grant us such a hatred of sin that we would prefer death to the staining of our soul. Uh, It's like uh, Blanche of Castile, the mother of uh, King St. Louis IX of France. Uh, She told him when he was still just a boy, I would rather see you dead at my feet than commit a mortal sin. 
You know, the, the sorrowful mysteries can be pretty harrowing um, if you contemplate what Jesus really suffered for us and what he continues to do for us uh, in the Blessed Sacrament. You know, that he promised, I'll be with you all days, and, and he keeps this promise by being present uh, in, in the Holy Eucharist. And I think that's why it's a traditional custom to pray the sorrowful mysteries every day of Lent. Um, but that actually, you know, it, it can't, like I say, it can be harrowing, but it, it helps to make the joy of Easter complete when we finally return to praying the glorious mysteries. So the first glorious mystery, of course, the resurrection. And Christ comes from the tomb in glory. He's victorious over sin and all, over all the infernal powers. And, and henceforth, sufferings and death have lost their dominion over his glorious humanity. And what, you know, what, a, what a consolation for us to know that even when he's confined to the humble conditions of his presence in the Holy Eucharist, he's still in full possession of the life and the joy and the glory of his resurrection. It is the resurrected Lord that we receive in Holy Communion and whom we adore in the Blessed Sacrament. And so in this mystery, we contemplate the immortal King of Ages, the eternal King. We beg of him through the intercession of his Holy Mother, a lively and loving faith in the real presence, uh, the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. The second glorious mystery is the Ascension, right? And in this mystery, the, the triumph of Christ has reached its perfection. By raising himself up to heaven through his own almighty power, he takes possession of his kingdom, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father to be forever the joy of the angels and the saints in heaven. And yet every day, without leaving that heavenly throne, he becomes present on our altars under the appearance of bread and wine to bring us a foretaste of that heavenly beatitude. Like Scott Hahn says, that Mass is where uh, heaven and earth meet. And he, Jesus, then, is the delight of pure souls. And as we contemplate this mystery, we beg of him through the intercession of Mary, the ardent desire of possessing him here and now under you know, the Eucharistic veils in order to possess him forever in heaven in his glory. Uh, the third glorious mystery is the descent of the Holy Ghost. Right, Our Lord has scarcely... <clears throat> just nine days entered into the glory of the right hand of the Father, when he demonstrates his kindness, his generosity to us by sending the Holy Spirit, along with his many and various gifts, to this newly formed and, and growing church. You know, from the Eucharist, where he set up his throne of love, he imparts to souls uh, uh, the spirit of life and strength, as, as he did from heaven, you know, on Pentecost, he does from the, from the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle and in communion. And so we beg him through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin, an ardent desire, uh, uh, or rather we, um, we pray, I, I lost my place here, uh, we contemplate the King of Heaven, who is also the King in the Eucharist, right? He imparts to us the spirit of life and strength, and through the intercession of his Holy Mother, we ask for fidelity to grace in order to reap the fruits of uh, producing our souls by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the, the, the last two, of course, uh, mysteries are about Mary. The fourth glorious mystery is the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin. And there's some debate over whether or not the Blessed Virgin uh, tasted death before her Assumption. Pius XII kind of just skirted the issue in his proclamation of the dogma. But in, in Europe, in the Middle Ages, this mystery was generally called the Dormition of Mary. And Dormition means falling asleep. 
right? That being the New Testament euphemism for death. And I believe that as Mary experienced everything uh, in our Lord's life in an exceeding degree, that she also experienced his death, uh, experienced death and resurrection. In any case, we know that, that uh, Jesus would not um, leave his blessed mother here below and, and amidst you know, the, the transports of an ineffable communion, he took her soul from the land of exile. But her virginal body, like that of her divine son, must not know con- corruption, right? It's prophesied by the psalmist, that wilt not give thy holy one to see corruption. And so he raised her from the dead, and brilliant as the sun, brought her on angels' wings to the seat of eternal glory. Jesus is our resurrection and life. And through the intercession of his holy mother, we pray that we can die in the arms of her who is also our mother. And having received the pledge of our glorious resurrection in a sincere and worthy communion, right? That we will not die unprovided. And then finally, the fifth glorious mystery is the coronation of the Blessed Virgin in heaven. You know, as the divine son of Mary, and in order to make his blessed mother a partaker of his own glory, our Lord and the Father crowned her queen of heaven and earth and appointed her as our advocate for the, you know, the living, uh, a living channel of his graces. St. Bernard said that whoever loves Mary honors God. Whoever serves Mary pleases God. Whoever invokes her holy name with a pure heart will infallibly receive the object of his petition. According to St. Bernard, uh, from the Eucharist, not less from heaven, Jesus wills that every grace we receive shall come to us through the hands of Mary. And so in this final mystery of the Eucharistic Rosary, we contemplate Jesus in his unspeakable glory, of which he made his mother a partaker, that she partakes of that glory with him. And we beg of him through her intercession a great confidence in the powerful protection and great sincerity in imitating the virtues of Mary, in particular her purity, humility, and fidelity to grace. And once again, part of the message uh, of given to Sister Mary Ephraim by Our Lady of America and just approved last year for our private devotion. And so <clears throat> we uh, ask the intercession of Our Lady of America, Our Lady Queen of the Rosary, uh, pray for us, Virgin Most Powerful, pray for us. And I'll let you know, if you're interested, you can find the Eucharistic Rosary in uh, its uh, book. It's called My Prayer Book. It's compiled by uh, Father Lassant. It's available from various publishers in, in different editions. Um, you can also, I suspect you can, if you search Father Lassant's and Eucharistic Rosary, there's a pretty good chance that somebody's put it up on uh, the Internet by now uh, so that you can uh, take advantage of it, take it with you to adoration uh, or to the extraordinary form of the Mass. All right. Hey, till next time, I want to say thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Next week, we're going to talk. I uh, have plans to talk about St. Joseph and more from the imitation of Christ, uh, you know, preparing for St. Joseph's Day here uh, in 2021. Boy, do we need his uh, intercession more than ever in this year of St. Joseph. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.